congregation that has turned to the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. Lord's Day 3 on page 29. Lord's Day 3, questions 6 through 8. Question 6, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? And by no means. But God created man good, and after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Seven. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? And from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. And eight, are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So far, what we need after having fallen from a state of true happiness. That's the theme. What we need after having fallen from a state of true happiness. Three thoughts. Created to happily glorify God. That's the purpose. We were created to happily Glorify God. As you see in the last line of answer 6, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Secondly, fallen into total corruption. As we see in 7, about the depravity of human nature, that is so corrupt that we are conceived and born in sin. And in the third place, a need, a need of regeneration. We read it in the last part of 8. Indeed, you are accepted, you are regenerated by the Spirit of God. What we need after having fallen from a state of true happiness, created to happily glorify God, fall into total corruption and in need of Regeneration. Congregation, do you remember last time that we talked about hatred? Hating God. Hating our neighbor. Really? Are we hating God? Is that how deep he fell? And yes, our forefathers said we are prone. That's the Previous Lord's Day, too. 
prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I was wondering if I had explained it well enough. Prone. What is prone to evil? Inclined to evil? A propensity? A tendency? I was thinking of some loggers were felling a huge tree. And the tree was kind of slanted. It was not straight. It was leaning over a little bit to one side. And the logger looked up and he said, if we are going to fell this tree, I know it will fall that way. You can see that. There is a propensity, there is an inclination to hang to the left, to the right. And that's important to know, right? Because when you start sighing that tree, you have to know where to, where to go. Is that how it is? Are we having an inclination to sin that we just almost fall that way? We have a proneness? No. No, that's not the example. Because that tree is inclined to fall a certain way, but it is not falling. Not falling. Just someday it might fall. It is inclined to fall a certain way, but it's not falling yet. So I think we need to know, to have, to have another example about being prone. Think of rain falling on Mount Cher, Mount Elk, on, on, the, on the mountains, and as well this comes down, right? It comes down from the mountains into the valley, going to the Fraser, going to the ocean, that water has a tendency to go to a lower place. And it just keeps going. The water keeps coming. It doesn't stop. And that's what it is. You are prone to evil. You are prone to hate God and our neighbor. And just keeps going. That's what it says. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly in no wise? For I'm prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Hating God meaning that we don't really care for God, that we don't really care for our neighbor, that deep down we are selfish. There's our own cause and our own honor, our own status. So that about the previous Sunday. Another question, six. Having heard that, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? Did God make it that way? Like a mighty stream of foul transgression prevails from day to day, a mighty stream, you see the, the, the rain coming and the rivers flowing in the tendency? No, we are not made it way. By no means. God created man good. Good. And after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, God gave knowledge, righteousness, holiness in his image, with the purpose that may rightly know God. 
That was the purpose of creation, that he may know him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. So we were created in a, in a state of happiness. True happiness. There is still happiness left on earth in marriage, in having children, in work, in nature. But that real happiness that the Lord created Adam and Eve for, that real happiness is different now. We have lost that happiness. The word happy occurs quite often in the Bible. If I count well 55 times, and we have also the words gladness and rejoicing and many of those words. Yet the natural happiness is small compared to the happiness of Adam and Eve before the fall. Oh, they were truly happy, so content, so satisfied, doing so well, because they rightly knew God. They knew Him. Do you know Him? I mean, do you have a relationship with Him? Do you talk to Him? Do you listen to Him? Is he part of your life? Is he part of your day? Is he are you close to him? Are you in touch with God? Adam and Eve were in, in paradise. So close they knew him. Sometimes I ask people, do you, do you know the person? Do you know him? Say, I, I don't know him. Or I, I hardly know him, just this little bit. But if you would have asked Adam and Eve, do you know him? They would say, yeah, I know him. I know God. And he knows me. I am his creature. To rightly know him. That, that joy is even possible after the fall. But it is mainly a rejoicing in him. Not a rejoicing only in creation, and in the fields and the mountains and the weather. It is rejoicing in God. That's the point of paradise. Like we read in Psalm 5, but let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because thou defendest them let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Do you know what it means? To be joyful in someone. To be joyful in your wife. To be joyful in the Lord. In him. To find your joy in that way. Psalm 9, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. So rejoicing in him is close to praising him. The real praising of God is rejoicing in God. How can you praise him without joy? 
So in paradise, Adam and Eve were rejoicing in God and praising him happily. For our hearts shall rejoice in him. Psalm 33. And the interesting thing is, talking about Adam and Eve rejoicing in God, that the Lord really liked that. The Lord really loved that. What? He loved to hear the sound. He loved to hear the words. No, the joy. The Lord is really honored when sinners rejoice in him. Rejoice in him. There is not just duty and obedience, and because you should do that, and you have to, it's your obligation. No great joy. And in between brackets, in between things, everything that is not connected to rejoicing in God is sin. We were made to rightly know him. We were made to rightly know him and rejoice in him and to have eternal happiness with him and live with him and heartily love him. It's the purpose. What is your purpose in life? What is your identity? What is really dear to you? You say, that's, I, I get something out of that. That is so special. I, I can't miss that. You know, nothing satisfies but God. Nothing can make you truly content but the Almighty One Himself to rejoice in Him. The Westminster Catechism we um, like that catechism, begins with this theme. What is the chief end of man? What is the main thing, the most important end, the most important purpose? What is the chief end of man? I really love that answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God, okay, and to enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose. It's how we were made, to rightly know Him and to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose of this life. To enjoy God. Deuteronomy 33. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is light unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help. Paradise. Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, 2 and 3. That is Bible story. That is history. 
that is not just a poem. It is not just an allegory. It really happened. Adam and Eve were real people. They existed, flesh and blood, like we have. Have you heard of Origen? A theologian born in 185? Maybe not. But he is the spiritual father of the allegorical inspiration. Allegorical inspiration. He spiritualized almost everything. He said, Adam and Eve, no, they did not exist. It's, it's a poem. It's a poem to just let you know some truth. Adam and Eve stand for mankind, and the serpent stands for Satan, and the garden stands for the world. And he just interprets it spiritually. And in the meantime, he dehistorized the Bible. Dehistorizing. Do you know what dehistorizing is? You take the history out of it. And you only have the symbols left. So that is dangerous. And we strongly disagree with Oregon to spiritualize Bible stories. Because if you like to make them more spiritual, you make them less spiritual. And you take the heart out of it. So often, histories have meaning and purpose, and there is also comparison, and there are types of Christ. That's all true. But that's not the same as spiritualizing it. Still today, many spiritualize Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And don't take it seriously. Six days. He created things in six days, really. Just a poem, right? But no, we say that it's real. There were real people, a real sin. And if the first Adam was not real, what about the second Adam? And if there was no state of rectitude, the things are right. So very, what, what happened then? And modern theologians state there to say that sin came to mankind through the animals. And we have developed out of animals and become better and better and better. We are on our way to get even more, more perfect. That's not the way. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. But yes, we were created in God's image. What does that mean? Children. Does it sometimes happen that people say to you, you you look exactly like your mom? 
You have the same eyes, the same way you walk, same image as your dad. Those soul Adam and Eve were made in God's image. They looked like him. Do you know that? In paradise? They looked like God. The Lord said, let us make man in, his, in, our, in our own image, in our own likeness. And the Lord made Adam and Eve in his own image. Just look at Adam and you see something of God. What do you see there? The Mormons, the sect of the Mormons, the Mormons say, apparently God has a body. It's a body. Because he created Adam and Eve according to his likeness. No, we say that's not what the Bible teaches. It's, it's in a different way that people were made after God's image. It's not something physical, but there are three things in the Bible about it. Mentioned in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, it is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Righteousness and holiness and, and, and knowledge. Right now, our understanding is darkened. We have such a lack of understanding spiritual things. We are just so mixed up. But Adam and Eve in paradise, they had real knowledge of God. They knew him. They communicate with him. They lived in God, but his offspring moved in him. Now, well, that's also found in Acts 17. The Apostle Paul talking to the men in Athens on Mars Hill. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. So God is still close. We don't have the knowledge of that. We miss most of the time the awareness of it. But Adam and Eve, before the fall, were completely and deeply aware of God's presence. And that made them so happy, right, as we talked about before. Although God is infinite and we are finite, so we cannot really grasp God's essence, yet there was something good in, in paradise. There was a perfect, good knowledge of God and a knowledge of good and evil. Their consciences were perfect. They had never, Adam and Eve, had never discussions like, what do you think? Is it right? Or wrong? Can we do that? Or not? They never talked like that. They just knew. They knew it from the heart, from the conscience. They were made in his image, in knowledge. But joy it was never a distance to God. It was never a wounded conscience. 
Never a question like, did we grieve him? Nothing. And that's how the Lord made Adam and Eve. Also righteousness. Righteousness is that God is faithful to himself and that we are faithful to God in harmony with him, happily praising him and glorifying him and having that meaningful life, no emptiness, no boredom. Adam and Eve were never bored. How could they be bored with such a God and such a creation? If we have evolved from animals, we always have been savages, then we did not fall. But we have been developing to a better state than before, they say. So how much did we lose? How happy we could have been. And yet, let me already say, say that there is a way to have that happiness restored. It's possible. Happiness in the living God. Even if a part of that happiness has been returned, it gives happiness through the grace of God. So let me um, close this with a few quotes of Calvin. Tonight we hope to have a Reformation evening, but Reformation soon. But let me already go to Calvin. That's not about the happiness before the fall, but the happiness possible after the fall, when the happiness is restored. The highest and best part of a happy life consists in this that God forgive a man's guilt and receives him graciously into his favor. The highest, best part of a happy life. How do you feel now? Or the only way to walk through this life happily is to walk holily and harmlessly in the world in the service and fear of God. So that's the only way, the only way to have that happiness. And the other side of the coin, the happiness and prosperity which the ungodly enjoy, the ungodly enjoy happiness and prosperity as well, right? So the happiness and prosperity which the ungodly enjoy is only a mask and a phantom. It's not real. So do you have that fake happiness? The mask of it? You try to be happy, but it never completely works. Or did you find the true happiness in the same thing as Adam and Eve in paradise before the fall? Let us go to the second thought. Seven. Whence from error then proceeds this depravity of human nature 
from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Did you see a word depravity? Sin is not an add-on, but it is something missing. If sin will be an add-on that the Lord has, that, that, that we had done something extra and that there is something else that could be taken away, right? But it's a depravity. It is a corruption of our nature. And the Apostle Paul writes that we therefore are dead in trespasses and sins. That's interesting. Dead in sin. Spiritually dead. Really? Is any of you completely without impressions? Is any of you without any feelings of grieving and grieving God and jealous of God's people and hoping to go to heaven and don't we have impressions? Are we dead? I would think if someone is dead, he does not feel anything. If someone is totally dead, I would think someone has no desires and no seriousness and is just absolutely as cold as a stone. No. That's not true. Someone can cry and be impressed and feel emotional in church being absolutely dead. And it might feel good. It might feel good to be seriously minded. Kind of, oh, I feel the Lord. At least I'm not so indifferent. At least I feel something. That's not that bad, right? That gives me hope. But in the same time, that person can be as dead as possible. Because that deadness, that does not mean that you have no feelings, doesn't mean that you have no impressions, that being dead means that you have no will to serve God and to repent and to believe in Him. No will, absolutely zero. Resisting it, revolting against it, being super religious, maybe, but hating God and having no use for Jesus. Maybe even appreciating the law, like the Apostle Paul in his previous life. The law was just so meaningful to him. He just felt happy with the law. It was so unconverted, so dead in sins. So that means no delight in God, no sorrow for sin, no highly esteeming of Jesus. Or congregation that nobody deceives you. Some people reason like this. Were you touched in church? 
Really? So you saw some of the beauty of God and the ugliness of sin? You did? Wow. That's not from the devil. Right? It's not from the devil. The devil does not make you so seriously mind. It's not from yourself either, right? Because we are dead in sins, they say. So where does it come from then? If it is not from the devil and not from you. Well, the Lord is working hard, they say. That is, a, that is the wrong way of reasoning. Because we have also common impressions and we still have a conscience. Even unconverted people have a conscience, have some glimmerings of that light. There's something left from paradise. The conscience, the image of God. So we consciously and unconsciously resist I know it feels good to be emotional. One of my teachers in theological school taught us about the stalagmites and the stalactites. What is that? Stalactites and stalagmites. Have you been in a cave? In a calcium salt cave? There are some on Vancouver Island, I know. When you enter in those caves, it's wet. Sometimes the river. And you look at the ceiling, you see all those pillars coming down. And those pillars going up sometimes touching one another. Because the calcium rich salt comes down with the water and just drips and drips and drips and and leaves some of the calcium behind. And you see those stony pillars and when you have some light on the, there in, in the cave it just you see it, it's red it, it, it's shining and you feel it I don't think you're supposed to touch it but if you feel it it's as hard as a stone it's hard as a stone and yet wet and my teacher said to us as Students, when you preach, don't make stalagmites and stalactites. Don't do that. That you give the impression that when people are wet and crying, that they have a new heart. Not necessarily. They can be as hard as a stone without grace. The Lord is yet knocking on our door. When we feel those impressions, I don't say that means nothing. I don't say that's worthless. I say then the Lord is close by. When you feel those impressions, if you have to cry in church, then the Lord is knocking on the door. But you have to get through the door. Right? That's important. 
So it makes me a little upset when people for years and years and years pray and pray and pray and are waiting and waiting and waiting. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the Lord something to do. And they say, well, I can't do anything. I wait for the Lord to do something. And in the meantime, accusing God that he is not doing anything yet. And although we know that the Lord is free, you know, the Lord does not say, just wait and I will hear you someday. The Lord says, repent ye, repent ye today if you hear his voice hard and not your heart, right? So impressions are good. So how much do we need to know of our misery? This is about misery, right? How much do we need to know? How deep does that knowledge of misery need to be? Does it need to be frightening deep? Do we need to be close to committing suicide? How how deep? Do you need to cry for hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months? How deep does it need to go to me? How deep does it need to be? Well, so deep that we need Christ. Not deeper. Not less deep. Someone can be just be devastated and, and indeed close to committing suicide. But if it does not lead to the Lord Jesus, it's not enough. It's simply not enough. But if someone has a knowledge of Christ, maybe a knowledge of misery, maybe, maybe less than that, and it brings that person in a shorter time to the Lord Jesus, like the murder on the cross, right? That is the purpose. So did your misery lead unto the Savior? Did it press you to come unto him? Did you hear that voice, Come unto me, ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Is that the case? We need to keep in mind that God delights in a broken heart and a contrite spirit. However, being humble to the dust is not the final purpose. We need to be so sick that we need the physician, so guilty that we need the surety, so unclean that we need to be washed. So whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise? Hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. 
brings to the third one. Congregation question eight has emphasis. There's a few words that really show how serious the situation is. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Really? Is there nothing good? Are we so inclined to our wickedness like that foul stream of the stream of foul transgression? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So that means that nobody can do any good. Not? What about your mom? Your elderly mother? Who just did everything for you to raise you and loved you? Is she so corrupt? Is she so corrupt that she is wholly incapable of doing any good? And is your dear mother inclined to our wickedness? Really? Do you believe that? Or your child, do you have such low thoughts of your, your child's soul? My, 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 my children. My children are so corrupt that they are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. Really? You know, the crux of this is what is good? Of course, a nurse with no church background can be a fantastic nurse in the hospital. Just so loving and kind and maybe an example to others. So, what does it mean? Good. Matthew 19 about the rich young ruler. Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And the Lord Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. So nobody is good. Because good is perfect. Good is that you rejoice in him all the time. And that you rightly know him. And that you have that true purpose in life. To rejoice in him and to glorify him. That's your, that's, that's your chief end. But you know, there's so much in the way. So much that we adore and worship and treasure above God. And that is sin. Because God wants to constantly have the first 
place in our lives. Now, Calvin again, we are born lions, tigers, wolves, bears, until the Spirit of Christ tames us from wild savage beasts, forms us three mild sheep. So we need that transformation from lion, tigers, wolf, bears, until we become mild sheep. So something needs to change. Calvin, again, according to the constitution of our nature, oil might be extracted from a stone sooner then we could perform a good work. How can you get oil out of a stone? Impossible. So you can't get a good work out of people either. We need a change of constitution. Example for the children. Your dad has bought a house for a good price. And now we are waiting until the people have left. And then we go into the house and see what we have to fix. We've been there before, but then we'll have a close look and all, all the furniture is gone. We can have a close look at the house. And your dad's going to the house. And apparently the roof is leaking and the bathroom is Miserable and the floor is rotten and he's disappointed. So he's calling some contractor. How can you help me? And a few of the contractors go through the house and say, I can't see how we can fix this house. Too much has to be done. It's not worth it. So what is the solution? to build a new house. You know, the foundation is cracked and has moved and it's just, it's not going to work. You can't repair this. Do you understand me? That's us. We can't fix it. We cannot fix our nature. We cannot do our best and then do something to please God. It's, We need to start from scratch. We need a new heart. We need to be regenerated. We need to be rebuilt. We need to be quickened from the dead. We need that circumcision of the heart. See? Because you're so corrupt, that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and are inclined to our wickedness, and therefore we need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. 
So it's not sufficient to just say we have to believe in God, right? Just, I started believing in Him. Or I started to pray, and I prayed God to come into my life. That sounds all so superficial. We need more. We need a Savior who can save us from our corrupt nature and is really competent to give me a new heart. And there is one. There is a Savior who can save to the uttermost them that go to God by him. There is one. He can just restore it completely. He can change it all together. He can give you a new will, a new desire, new insight. So does it make sense to encourage people to seek, to pray, to repent, to believe? Some say, no, don't. Don't ask dead people to rise. Don't ask sinners to repent. Don't ask unconverted ones to believe. Because they cannot. And don't give the impression that they can. Some say. So then, the only thing you preach is, there is hope. Maybe it will be for you. That's all you can say. But you know, although there is the free and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, he goes where he wants to. Wherever the wind listeth, he goes where he wants to. Yet the Lord says today, repent ye. Repent ye. Turn ye. Turn ye. Why would you die? That's something the Lord says today. So we preach not only the impossibility to repent, we also preach the necessity to repent. And we should not hang one side or the other side. If we only talk about the necessity, the necessity, the necessity, Yes, then people might have the feeling I can do it myself. But if you only preach the impossibility, impossibility, then you just sit back and you become so easygoing, so passive, right? We read Isaiah 65. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I really like that text, no? You know? I'm sought of them that ask not for me. They didn't ask me. I, mean, I, I made them seek me. I'm found of them that sought me not. I love that. Behold me, behold me into a nation that was not called by my name. And then the next verse. I have spread out my hands all the day 
and to a rebellious people which walked within a way that was not good after their own thoughts. So that's Isaiah 65, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, I'm found of them that sought me not. And the second verse says, I've stretched out my arms, spread out my hands all the day to you. So that's what the priest is wanting. That you are dead in sins. That from outside there is no possibility of saving ourselves at all. We need a complete restoration of the house. Restoration is recreation. But yet, the Lord also says this morning to you, my friends, to the children, and to the young people, I have spread out my hands all the day to you. To a rebellious people, yes. Maybe you're deep over your head in sin. Maybe you're in the wrong path. Maybe you have addictions. Maybe you have problems in your life. Maybe you just feel so hostile. Whoever you are, I have spread out my hands all the day and to rebellious people, which walk in the way that is not good. After their own thoughts, is it you? The Lord is spreading out his hands unto you. So go home with that. And bring that also before the Lord. And don't forget that, that you should not wait and wait and wait and wait until you're dead. Today, if you hear, hear the voice of God, are you heavy laden? Are you laboring? Come unto me, ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A mighty stream of foul transgression prevails from day to day, but thou, O God, in great compassion, will purge my guilt away. Amen.